0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 through 10, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our context is this, in the last two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18, we see descriptions of a scarlet sea beast, which stands for the Roman Empire, upon whose back rode the whore of Babylon, that stands for the apostate nation of Israel. That's in chapter 17. Chapter 18, the metaphor switches to a city, Babylon the Great, instead of the whore of Babylon. It's the city of Babylon, the great city, Babylon the Great. Still the apostate nation of Israel. And chapter 18 t- talks of the fall of that apostate nation of Israel. And so we begin now with Revelation 19.1. After these things, and of course the, these things are the sea beast, the scarlet sea beast, the Roman Empire, and the whore of Babylon, the great city of Babylon. In the previous two chapters, after those things, I, John, heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, that great multitude in heaven probably refers to all the departed saints, plus all the angels, that's a lot of people, a lot of folks up there singing praise to God. And of course, one of the great themes of Revelation is praise to God. It shows up everywhere through the book. Now, since these 10 verses are going to be about the marriage supper of the Lamb, I thought I would give sort of a preview of how I'm going to interpret this. What I'm going to say is is the marriage supper of the Lamb is something that's done in preparation for marriage. You have a wedding feast. Just like today, we have receptions and meals that are associated with a wedding. Likewise, they did back then in ancient Jewish times. And this marriage was between Jesus and his church which occurred when the church was created in the first century, not at the end of time. And this marriage represents the full establishment of the new covenant. It does not refer to a reunion, a reunion with Christ at the end of time, which of course is going to happen, but this is not what the symbol is referring to. Now I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is parallel with chapter 11, which is about the opening of the temple and the establishment of a new covenant. The parallels are striking. So if we get in our minds that chapter 11 is about the New Covenant, then we hook that to chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is also about the establishment of the New Covenant. So first of all, let's see if Revelation eleven seventeen is about the establishment of the New Covenant. Revelation 11, said, 17 says this, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, the Almighty who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign begun. That means the reign has already started. So in chapter 11, the reign of Christ, the new covenant, has already started. We go to verse 19, first part of the verse in Revelation 11. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened. Well, because the temple is open, that means we have confident access to God the Father. And in the vision, John's vision, the temple is open. That means that we have confident access to God the Father now at the time of John's vision. So John was not talking about some opening of the temple 2,000 plus years in the future. So chapter 11 is clearly about the establishment of the new covenant. Now let's look at the parallels between chapter 11 and chapter 19, the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb. Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Those were loud voices of praise, I'm sure, and that matches perfectly with the first verse I just read you in Revelation 19. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. So you have great praise from loud voices in heaven in both the temple opening chapter 11 and the marriage supper of the Lamb chapter of Revelation 19. It's the new covenant that the marriage supper is talking about. Revelation eleven fifteen and the temple opening chapter... We read this, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19, 6, the marriage supper of the Lamb chapter. At the last part of the verse it says, hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. So we have reigning in common with the two chapters. Revelation 11, 17, the temple opening chapter says, we give you thanks Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Revelation 19:1. We also, in the marriage supper of the Lamb chapter, we hear about God's power. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. We look at Revelation 11:16, the temple open, opening chapter. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshipped God. Revelation 19:4, the marriage supper of the Lamb chapter, then the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God. All right, going back to chapter 11, where the temple is open, we read this, the nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets. And so the servants, the prophets are going to get the reward in chapter 11. Chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb says, He, has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hand. He gave the servants their reward. He avenged their blood. Revelation 11:18. this is the sixth parallel. In the establishment of the new covenant, because the temple is open, chapter, chapter 11, the nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. Revelation nineteen five, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Even the same terminology is used. We go to the seventh parallel. Revelation chapter eleven, verse nineteen in the chapter about the temple of God being open. We read this. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. Likewise, in the marriage supper of the Lamb passage in Revelation 19:6, we read this. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder. So, we have rumblings and peals of thunder in both passages. So, here's a summary of the seven things that are parallel between Revelation 18, where the temple is opened and the new covenant is established, and chapter 19, where we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I contend occurs at this foundation of the church when the bride is married to Jesus. Here are the seven parallel things one, great voices in heaven, two, the Lord God reigns, three, the Lord God has great power. Four, the 24 elders worship God. Five, God avenges the blood of the saints. Six, God's servants, both small and great, fear the name of the Lord. Seven, thunderings in heaven. Folks, it's talking about the same thing. I think that's pretty pretty obvious. Now notice in verse 1 we have that this great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah. What are they shouting hallelujah for? Because the scarlet beast and the whore of Babylon and the great city of Babylon, i.e. Rome and the apostate nation of israel had been destroyed burn up well the scarlet beast had been destroyed yet but the apostate nation of israel has been burned up by the beast so false israel has been burned up and so we see in the last part of chapter 18 where this happened we see an angel commanding the saints to rejoice because God has judged the whore of Babylon, Revelation 18:20). Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her, pronounced on Babylon the great, apostate Israel, has pronounced on her the, her the judgment she passed on you. So the saints are supposed to rejoice in this. The Christian Jews were not to mourn the passing of Jerusalem, which might be their tendency because, after all, Jerusalem was their home. But they're supposed to rejoice over it because they got what they deserved. We go now to Revelation nineteen two Because his judgments are true and righteous. The because refers to the, how, to the last part of verse 1. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because why does God have salvation, glory, and honor, and so forth? Because his judgments are true and righteous. What judgment is John talking about in particular, or the the great multitude in heaven talking about in particular? The judgment of the great whore, the great harlot, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Of course, the whore is the whore of Babylon, who had fallen in chapter 18, the immorality. We talked a lot about her immorality, how she spread her false antichrist religion all over the Roman Empire. She corrupted the earth with her immorality. Synagogues everywhere preaching against Jesus were all over the all over the place, all over the known world. So she was corrupting the earth, but no longer after 87, and she's gone. And by doing by destroying Jerusalem, God has avenged the blood of His bond servants, His church, on her, on the whore. Now avenging blood connects the whore of Babylon with the Jezebel whore in the Old Testament, Second Kings nine seven. This is Elijah who is speaking for God. He says, you are to strike down the house of your master Ahab so that I may avenge the blood shed by the hand of Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of all the servants of the Lord. So God's prophets, they were constantly being slaughtered from Abel to Zechariah. It was impossible for a prophet to to perish outside of Jerusalem because they all were in Jerusalem getting killed. But God avenges that blood. You don't get away with anything with God. He avenges murder. And this idea of vengeance, avenging the blood of the saints that's mentioned here, he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her in Revelation 19, too. That reminds us of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Luke 21, He said, for these be the days of vengeance. That's Jesus' predicting predictions concerning the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Those are the days of vengeance that are leading up to that disaster for apostate Israel. All right, so the church is avenged. So the bad is done with. Now we're getting ready for some good stuff. Revelation 193 3-4, and the second time they, that's the voices in heaven, the great multitude, said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Talk about schadenfreude. Talk about rejoicing in the hithy fall of your enemies. Hallelujah, she's burning. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Again, there's nothing wrong with praising God for the destruction of God's enemies. Nothing wrong at all about it. Now, that smoke rising up, that's in, that imagery is based on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis nineteen twenty-eight. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So just as Sodom burned, so did Jerusalem burn. Now, that forever and ever emphasizes the permanence of Jerusalem's fall, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Jerusalem fell permanently, but obviously Jerusalem didn't literally burn forever and ever. I mean, if you want to be hyper-literalist about it, you would say that the Jerusalem there was a fire started back then and it's still burning today, which of course is absurd. Note also the implications for those who say that the covenant unconditionally remains with Israel forever. Really? She just got burnt forever and ever. That's no unconditional covenant that Israel keeps regardless of how much sin they do. I mean, Deuteronomy 28 says you sin against me and all kinds of things. Hemorrhoids, boils, pestilence, all kind of bad things are going to happen to you. The church is eternally, the covenant of the old covenant is eternally filled in the church, in the new Israel, not the old Israel. Verse 4, Revelation 19, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The four living creatures, of course, standing for nature. The 24 elders standing for the people of God, 12 Old Testament tribal leaders and 12 New Testament apostles. They all fell down and worshiped God. That's all the people of God. Fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. More worship. One of the themes of Revelation. We go to Revelation 19:5, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Now who this voice is, it could have been one of the 24 elders. It could have been Jesus, the lamb who's there, remember, asking his brethren to praise the Father. We don't know. The lamb was in front of the throne, and the 24 elders were around the throne and the lamb, so it could have come from somewhere in there. It doesn't really matter. That voice says, give praise to our God. And again, the praise is particular praise. Praise because the whore of Babylon, Babylon the great city, apostate Israel, has been burnt up. <laughs> praise to God. Revelation 19, 6-8. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters. And if you, many waters means like waves crashing in the ocean is very loud. The voice of a great multitude, that's again, loud voices from heaven and like the mighty sound of mighty peals of thunder, because that's what loud water and loud voices sound like. So this great heavenly chorus says, Hallelujah, for, our, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. More worship, more praise. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Just like at a wedding feast, the guests wear nice clothes for the wedding feast. Here, the guests, i.e. the church, will be wearing fine linen, which stands for righteousness. In fact, it says right here, John says, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we're clothed in that as we go to this marriage supper. And as again, the marriage supper is at the time of the establishment of the New Covenant Church when God's enemies, namely the apostate Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets, were dealt with. Now it's time for feasting because we are married to the Lamb. Now this great multitude that sounded like crashing ocean waves and peals of thunder Who was in that multitude? Well, you had the 24 elders. You had all the angels up there in heaven. You had all creation in heaven. That would be the angels on the earth. That would be all the cats and dogs and everything that's living on the earth. Under the earth, that would be all the earthworms down there. On the sea, in the sea, all the fish, everything. Natural creation and human creation is saying, Praise be to God because he deserves our glory. And he reigns. He's ruling. The marriage of the Lamb here is a marriage whereas the destruction of the Horror of Babylon was the great divorce. The great divorce of God from his covenant people because they rejected him. And so God says, okay, you divorced me, I'm going, to marry the, I'm going to marry the New Testament church. Now let's take up this idea because so often you hear futurists just assume that the marriage supper of the Lamb is at the end of time. But a little pondering will make us ask, is the church Jesus' bride now? Or is it not Jesus' bride now? In Ephesians 5, when Paul says that the church is the bride of Christ. Now, when did the church become Jesus' bride? Well, it was at the crucifixion, resurrection, Pentecost, and all those events back then that established the church. Now, are marriage suppers conducted at the time of the wedding? Mm, Yes, every marriage supper I ever knew was conducted at the time of the wedding. Well, when was the wedding? When was the wedding? At the crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost, when the church was formed. That's when the wedding was. That's when Jesus married the bride, and that's when the marriage supper was. Well, now one possible futurist comeback to that is by saying, well, the bride of Christ here is merely the betrothed to Christ. The bride of Christ, sorry, at uh, at the time of Ephesians five in the first century, the church was not married to Jesus; we were merely betrothed to Jesus, and the marriage will not be consummated till we get to heaven. All I can say to that is, in Revelation, John doesn't say the betrothal to the Lamb; he says the marriage of the Lamb. They are different. They might be close, but they are different. He says the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb inaugurates the so called age to come. In Hebrews 2 5, we read this, For he is not subjected to angels, the world to come. In other words, he's subjected to the Son, the world to come, i.e., the church, the people who believe in him. And that was back then, in the first century, not 2,000 plus years later. The author in Hebrews 2 5 is speaking of the new covenant age. It is Christians who put God. Who God has put the world to come in subjection to Christians. Notice one other, well, a small point, but it's a it's a an important part. Verse point in verse eight, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. It was given to her all those righteous acts of the saints that was given to her so that she could clothe herself in fine linen in righteousness. It was given to her. That shows that the good works of the church are from grace alone. So yeah, we're supposed to do good works, but you got to remember, you're not going to do good works without God's grace. You're going to be the same old selfish snot you always were before you got saved. Revelation, uh, Romans, excuse me, Revelation, not Romans, Revelation 19:9. 9. Then he said to me, that's the voice from the throne, probably verse 5. And as I said, when we were on verse 5, the voice from the throne could be one of the elders or Jesus maybe asking the brethren to praise the Father. And then that voice, whoever it was, said to me, said to John, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he, the NIV says the angel, the New American Standard says he, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now this marriage supper of the Lamb, we're all Christians, it's assumed here that we're blessed, Christians are blessed when we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, when do we go eat that supper? We're invited now, but when do we go? Well, the Lord's Supper of the Lamb is celebrated in every communion meal of the Church. It's the central focus of the Church's meetings. We read in Acts 27, on the first day of the week, we assembled in order to break bread, in order to have communion. There's two other places where the purpose of meeting is to meet to eat the Lord's Supper. For example, First Corinthians 11. I'm quoting this off the top of my head. When you come together, when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you come together in order to eat because you're getting drunk, in order to eat the didache, that ancient manual of church practice, I think it's 2nd century, early. But every Lord's Day do you gather yourselves together and break bread. Every Lord's Day you break bread. So eating the communion meal was the central focus of the church's church's worship. And that, I submit to you, is what the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is eating the Lord's Supper with Jesus. Now, I can't prove that. But I think it's a reasonable assumption. I mean, I can't prove it any more than futurists say that we're going to eat the that when Jesus said when I I'll eat it with you until that day when I eat it with you in my kingdom. They say, well, see, that's the marriage supper of the lamb. So futurists tie the marriage supper of the lamb to the Lord's Supper. So I don't guess that's very controversial. I'm tying it to the Lord's Supper also, but I'm saying that we already eat. We already participating in the marriage supper of the lamb. Now, some possible objections to that Preterist view is, how can Jesus eat with us if He is not physically present with us? Well, think about John Calvin's spiritual real presence view of the communion. He said that Jesus is with us spiritually every time we eat the meal. Now, that's the end of the now, since I believe that the Calvin's view of the communion is right, I realize that's controversial, but I believe that it's right. Well, then that means Jesus is with us. And even if it's not right if you believe in the Catholic transubstantiation theory or the Lutheran consubstantiation theory. Jesus is with you really physically while you eat the meal. So why do we have a problem saying, why can Jesus eat with us if he's not here physically? I mean, here's another point about that. God himself, who is obviously not physical, he ate a meal with the nobles of Israel on Mount Sinai. We read in Exodus 24:11, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, they saw him and didn't die, and they ate and drank. So they ate and drank in God's presence. While they saw him, I don't know how they saw him, but they ate drank in his presence, and God's not a body, so that's not an objection to saying that the marriage supper of the Lamb is fulfilled every time we take communion today. We go to revelation nineteen ten that I fell at his feet to worship him. The first question we need to answer is who is this hymn that John is falling at his feet? Well, I mentioned earlier that this voice from heaven that was that John was speaking to, could have been one of the 24 elders, It could have been an angel. I also mentioned Jesus, but that's wrong. I'm going to go back and edit that out of the tape actually. It can't be Jesus because this this person that John fell to the feet of said that he was a fellow servant of the brethren. Well, that's not Jesus. He held the testimony of Jesus. Well, I guess it could be Jesus because you could say Jesus is a fellow servant of the Christians and of the brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, I guess it's possible. I don't think, though, it's likely. I think it's probably one of the 24 elders or an angel. In fact, the NIV translation at Revelation 19.9 has angel, that I fell at his feet to worship him. Most people do take it as an angel, and so I go along with that. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, the problem, we have a problem here. It is almost universally assumed that, Jesus, that John fell at the angel's feet to worship the angel because he was an angel and he was so glorious that John got the worshiping bug in him, and he fell down to worship him. And the angel said, "Ah, uh-uh, don't do that. David Chilton says, "That's a problem with that. If we take this in the sense of John falling down at his feet to worship a God, are we going to say that about John the apostle who just received the revelation of Jesus Christ? And he's going to worship another God than Jesus? That's not very likely. Also note that the angel did not rebuke him for idolatry, which would be natural and logical, but the angel didn't say, hey, John, what are you doing, man? That's idolatrous. The word worship can mean respect, show respect, as well as it can mean to worship. So if we read it that way, then I feel it fell at his feet to give him respect, to give the angel respect. Then what you have is the angel saying, Hey, don't do that. You don't need to get down and show me all this honor. You're just as good as I am because you are of the brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. So, John, you have the testimony of Jesus. I'm a fellow servant. You're a servant. I'm a servant. We're equal don't show me so much obedience. I think Chilton's got a very good point there. In fact, I think, I think he's right. Now, this word for worship, proskuneo, is used not only for worship of a God, but also to show reverence due to superiors, as I just said, and to show that, we can look at Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship, proskuneo, before you, the Philadelphians' feet. Well, now, God's not going to make the false Jews in the synagogue of Satan go down and worship the Philadelphians as if the Philadelphians were God. And yet the same word is used there. He says, I'm going to make you come down and worship at your feet. It just means to give you respect and honor, like you'd bow down before a king, like everybody goes into the king of England or the queen of England, and they always do these bows. It doesn't mean they're worshiping him as a a God. It just means they're showing him respect. And so the angel is saying to John and all Christians are equal with angels when it comes to respecting the kingdom. And so ironically, this verse is usually interpreted as saying John is trenching on God's honor. When actually John was trenching on his own honor, he was being too humble. He says, look, man, you're a fellow servant just like I am. Get up. And we should think about that the next time we get depressed over how worthless we are. Don't do that. Don't make yourself. You shouldn't make yourself higher than you should, but don't make yourself lower than you should be either. You are an heir of Christ a fellow servant of Christ. You have the testimony of Jesus. Now this do not do that, do not give me worship is repeated also in Revelation chapter 22 verses 8 and 9. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. That verse does make it sound more like it's divine worship that John was offering because the angel deflects from him and then he says worship God. So that kind of weakens my case a little bit or weakens Chilton's case. And it's a minor point. But I really think that's interesting that you can really interpret that as saying that the angel is saying, you're being too humble, John. Now, John and the brethren had the testimony of Jesus. Now, if the testimony of Jesus, which can be translated the testimony about Jesus if the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, because that's what prophecy points to. It points to Jesus. And if the brethren of John hold the testimony about Jesus, and the, then the brethren also have the spirit of prophecy. Now, if you got the testimony of Jesus and the spirit of prophecy, you ought not to be given obedience to an angel. So the angel says, in effect, get up and worship God because you have every right to be in his presence every bit as much as I do, assuming that Chilton is right in that interpretation. So ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished... Revelation chapter 19, 1-10, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. In our next audio, we will start at Revelation 19, verse 11, go through 21, and we'll talk about Jesus conquering on a white horse. And we'll also see the ultimate fate of the whore and the scarlet beast. The whore being apostate Israel and the scarlet beast being the Roman Empire. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.